Heavenly Father, this morning we want to be a people who can say with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength that all we have is Christ. And in that single statement, be fully satisfied, knowing that it is sufficient. We ask, Father, that you would bless our ears this morning as we hear you speak to us through this minor prophet Joel. A time long ago when you warned your people of this coming day of judgment, a day for all mankind when we are brought before you, our thrice holy God, and called to give an account for the lives that we have lived. We praise you, Father, for offering us hope in Christ, that not all on that day will perish, but some, those who you redeem by grace through faith in Christ, will live. We ask, Lord, that we would be those people, that this morning you would give great assurance to your children here this morning as we hear of this great day to come. For those who do not know you this morning, I pray, Lord, today would be a day of salvation for them, that they would see their sins and they would see the glory of Christ upon the cross and they would repent and believe and be spared. We ask above all else, Father, that you would magnify your glory during this time, that you would help us to see you in a way that we did not even this morning when we arose, that you would reveal your goodness, your mercy, that you would show us your holiness and your justice, that you would cast our eyes upon heaven this morning, that we might see you as you truly are and fall down in worship. You are worthy of it. We ask, Father, that we would do that now, that we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. you do not have your Bible open, please do so. We are finishing Joel today. We've been 10 weeks in the Minor Prophet, and if you've been with us, I pray that it's been a great encouragement for you. I pray that you've been edified. Most of us don't know Joel well. It's not a book you hear preached on much, but if you've been with us, you've seen the incredible gospel testimony beginning in the judgment and then God's calling them to repentance. They repented in the temple with the priest, and then God poured out blessings, promising restoration of the land, and then, of course, showing us the great restoration of the earth and the universe uh, when he comes again in glory. And he closes here, I think, in a very fitting manner. Uh, Joel closes not only with a, a sense of hope for God's people, but with a firm warning of that day that is to come. And I think it's important that we understand that that day is before each and every one of us, that we don't take that day lightly that great day of the Lord. The title of the sermon is The Avenger. Um, and you probably thought, well, he's, he's thinking Avengers. And I am, in part. Um, this month, for those of you who are, are Marvel fans, I grew up reading Marvel comics, and I grew up when they were cartoons. There was no such thing as a, a movie about Batman or Spider-Man. Um, I know I'm confusing DC and Marvel, so forgive me. <clears throat> 19 days from now, that movie that everybody's been waiting for, The Avengers Infinity War, is going to be coming out. Um, It will no doubt be a big movie, probably bigger than any Marvel fan could possibly imagine. The movie is all the Marvel superheroes coming together to fight one last battle. So on the same screen, you're going to have Iron Man 
and Captain America and Thor and Black Panther and the Guardians of the Galaxy, and they're going to be taking on Thanos, this evil villain that's coming to Earth, and his purpose is to destroy half the universe. He's the antagonist. Yes, that's the plot of the movie. I'm sorry if I ruined it for you. To say it's going to be big would be an understatement. It will be apocalyptic and cataclysmic, and it's intended to be so. It's the infinity war. It's the war to end all wars. Its debut in the next few weeks is fitting for us finishing the prophet Joel, because that's how Joel ends, with an infinity war, a war to end all wars. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm going to, but there are several things that I know it has in common. Number one, both deal with a final battle. Both deal with a battle between good and evil. Both are going to be cataclysmic and apocalyptic in nature. And both have heroes that come to save the day. There are some distinct differences that we must note as well. Infinity War is a motion picture. Joel is a prophetic word in Hebrew poetry. That's probably why we don't have millions standing in line to come in to hear the sermon this morning. It's not a motion picture. Infinity War has multiple superheroes. Joel has one. Infinity War is a fictional story. Listen, my Marvel fanatics. It is a fictional story made for entertainment. Joel is a prophetic word from God given to man that we might be saved from the real infinity war to come. If we had any sense about ourselves, there would be millions closing into a church like this, wanting to hear this message. The movie doesn't come out for three weeks, so let's, let's spend some time finishing up Joel. I, I want to tap into the cataclysmic thirst, the apocalyptic thirst that seems to have captivated the culture. And I want to draw it into truth. I want to bring it into God's truth and the gospel truth. Because the battle, for those of you who go to see the movie, the battle that they portray, as big as it is, will be nothing compared to the battle that God is going to wage against fallen man. And so, I want to talk about that real battle this morning. I want to do it in three ways. I want to look at the final war, the real final war. Number two, the spoils of war, and that's you. That's the church. And number three, the final state. When it's all said and done, when the war is over, what does it end like? What does it look like? So let's, let's look at this war first. If you would, look at verse 9 through 11 with me in Joel chapter 3. God says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. And so God ends this book with this call. It's a summons to all nations, to all men from every tribe, tongue, and nation, men of war, weak men, strong men, young men, old men. He says, everybody come down because we're going to end this war once and for all. He says, whatever you have, bring all your weapons, whatever metals you have, your plowshares, turn them into swords, your pruning hooks, make them into spears. This is the battle between God and mankind. 
It is the final battle. It is the real infinity war where God will display His holiness by punishing sin and rebellion once and forever and restoring His kingdom as it should be. We have been at war with God since the beginning. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve from the garden, man has been warring against God, and God has been patient, wanting many to come to a saving grace. But on this day, the patience will end, the war will begin, and man, apart from Christ, will not stand. He says to the nations, consecrate for war. Some of your Bibles say, sanctify for war. Some say, prepare for war. Consecrate is actually the best word. We looked at it earlier in Joel chapter 2, if you remember when God was calling the people to come back to the temple and seek forgiveness, he said this in Joel 2, 15 and 16, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. It literally means sanctify or make holy, and it's a call to worship. And you say, well, that... That's a strange thing here then. Why would he say consecrate for war? I can hear him saying come out for war or prepare for it, but it seems odd that he'd say consecrate for it. And the reason that sounds odd to us is we don't remember, or maybe we don't, that in antiquity when nations fought, they fought on behalf of their gods. War was very much a religious endeavor. It It was an engagement of worship. And that's why priests... From every nation, before a war, they would gather in their temples and they would sacrifice to their gods and they would fast and they would pray and they would ask God to intercede on behalf of their nation. This is not foreign to the Old Testament. For Samuel chapter 7, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The understanding was this. The nation who had the strongest God would win the battle. Whoever's God was stronger would win in war. And so God is not only calling out the nations. He's not only saying, bring all the people out into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Bring all your gods, all your idols. Bring every weapon you have against me, your creator, into the valley of decision. Look at verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And so the imagery goes from God as a warrior engaging in the battle to God now sitting as a judge, seated upon the judgment seat that is about to transpire. And so he's brought out all the nations and all the people and all their false gods, all their idols, and he's going to now render judgment against them. He says, you go out and you, you call upon your Baals and your Ashtaroths. He says, for us, it would be, you call upon your schooling and your work. You call upon your success in your neighborhood. Call upon your bank accounts or how well you uh, married or how well your kids have been raised. Call upon any idol that you have and bring it out. Your good deeds, your church attendance, your absolute tolerance, your money, your power, your fame, your friendship. Bring it out to the valley of decision. And let's see how your God does against the creator of the universe. This is the summoning of all mankind. All the idols and all people brought to the valley decision before the creator of the universe. Now, if your idol is able to overcome God, then you need not worry. If you have an idol in your life that is stronger than the creator of the universe, then you can enter the valley of decision and you can be all right. But the odds are against you. 
Do you remember when the priest of Baal came against Elijah at Mount Carmel? Do you remember that in 1 Kings chapter 18? That was a a foreshadowing. My biblical theology students this morning, that's a foreshadowing of this great day of judgment to come. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, listen to this. Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire upon it. He wanted the priests to call out to their gods that God might set the sacrifice on fire. And so they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey and perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. He says, you want to see this. With 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar. And he put the wood in the order and cut the bowl in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said, listen, fill four jars with water and pull it on the, pour it on the burnt offering in the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Listen, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Hishon and slaughtered them there. What chance does your idol have against God? The end for mankind who does not have Christ as Lord and Savior. The end for every man, woman, and child who goes into the valley of decision with an idol, whatever that idol may be, will perish because God wins. Look at verse 13. God said, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And so again, we have a shift in imagery. God starts as the warrior, then he becomes the judge, and now God is the farmer. And you said, oh, this is much better. Farmer's okay. Warrior bad, judge bad, but farmer, I mean, I, I think of farming, and I think of a man on a tractor, and he's plowing the fields, and, you know, there's, there's some idea of peace in that. Until you realize what this farmer's doing, this farmer's harvesting grapes and he's harvesting the grapes because they are ripe and he's going to put them into the wine press 
and he's going to squeeze out the juice. Verse 13, the analogy is not speaking about grapes and wine. It's speaking about people and their sins. Look again. Go in, tread. This is God, the farmer. For the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. This is a picture on the valley of decision of God gathering all those who refuse to be saved and putting them together and then pressing, convicting, punishing them for the sins that Christ did not cover. Revelation 14, we get a clearer picture of this. When God the farmer harvests his justice by destroying, listen, all who continue in rebellion. Revelation 14, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. <clears throat> and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. You say, well, what, how, what, what is that? That's blood five feet high for 184 miles. Five feet high, 184 miles. And you must ask, how, how could that possibly be? How could the judgment be so extreme? How could there be so many people? Look at verse 14. The prophet said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. <clears throat> For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. That phrase, multitudes, multitudes, in the Hebrew, it's a superlative, and it means the largest gathering possible. No greater gathering than this one in the valley of decision. Now, I know we live in a time that wants to think that all people are going to heaven. We live in a time when even in the evangelical church, we dismiss the power of sin and hell and God's judgment upon those who are not in Christ. Just this last week, the Pope said on record that he does not believe there is a hell. There are many in the church who believe that there is a hell, but they think it's just reserved for certain people like Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin. And they say it's not for the normal person. It's just for the extra evil. The Bible says otherwise, my beloved. The Bible says if we render verse 14, Revelation 14 correctly, if this blood's going to be five feet high and 184 miles wide, it is only because God will judge all mankind universally throughout human history. In other words, this gathering on the Valley of Jehoshaphat, this, this gathering in the Valley of Decision will comprise every person from Adam and Eve to that last person that is born that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will be there. They will be there and be judged. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, why? For the gate is wide and the way is easy, it leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. They are many. In light of this day that Joel is describing, this valley of decision, I want to ask you right now, and I want you to ask yourself, how comfortable are you with the idols that you bow down to? I mean, we, we just sang, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. And it's a glorious song, and, and when you sing it and my ears hear it, I am stirred by it. 
And I praise God for your song. But is that true for you? Can you say Jesus is my life? If you cannot, then you have an idol. And it's that idol that you will bring into the value decision. And you must know that that idol cannot stand against God. Whatever that idol is. And for some of you, my beloved, those idols are the blessings that God has given you. It is a good marriage. It is a profitable job. It is an opportunity to live in a place like Silicon Valley instead of Beirut or, or Kuwait. When God summons the nations to war, when he sits upon the judgment seat, when he harvests evil, will your idol stand? It says here in verse 13 that this wrath is so severe, so severe, the sun and the moon and the stars cannot shine. This wrath is so severe that when God roars from Zion, the heavens and the earth quake. If that's true, how will your idol fare for you in the valley of decision? No matter how captivating your idol is to you, no matter how you find yourself daily looking at it and being attracted to it, it does not have the power to overcome the thrice holy God. It will fail you. It will fail you. So by God's grace, I pray that we see that this final battle, the final judgment, the final harvest of total destruction will come upon, listen, all those who refuse to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He is the avenger. He is the superhero. And if he is not your life, if you cannot say in your heart and mind, Christ is my life, then when this day comes, you will perish. You cannot put your hope in anything other than Christ. No other superhero, not the Black Panther, not Spider-Man, not even the Hulk. For those of you who love the Hulk, because he's the guy, he's not your superhero. Christ is. Only Christ is. So what will happen for those who say, all right, Christ is my life. I believe that infinity war is coming, and I believe I need a hero to save me from it. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Do I have to go through this war? Point number two, no, you don't, because you'll be the spoil of war. You know what that term, spoil of war, means? When the victors would come in, and they would overcome a nation or a city, they would then take from that city what was there. They would take the supplies, and they would take food, and they would take the houses. It was the spoils of war, the victory of the battle. Well, you, my beloved, are the victory of the battle. Christ wins you when he overcomes sin and death. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 16. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel, the glorious future of Judah, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Not all will be called into the battlefield. Not all will be judged by God and condemned to eternal death. Not all will suffer his harvest and be pressed in the winepress. He says, to my people, I will what? I'll be a refuge. I'll be a stronghold. That means a shelter. That means a, a fortress. So when the war is being raged and God is exercising his wrath, you will be safe. You're behind the city walls. You are confined in Christ. The judgment will come. The war will rage. 
the harvest will take place, but you, if you're in Christ, will be safe. We talk about good news. If that battle is real, and that battle is coming, and I must go to it, knowing that someone's going to come and take me out of that, someone's going to cover me from it, God's people will be delivered by Jesus Christ. The Bible says that when Christ comes again to wage war, he's going to send out his angels to the four corners of the earth. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to get you. They're going to grab you. From the beginning to the end of time, God's children will be gathered together and they'll be brought into the refuge of Christ. They'll be brought into the stronghold of God. They'll be brought into specifically here in Zion where Christ will be dwelling. The new city, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, you will participate in. With Christ as victor, he gets the spoils and the spoils are us. The spoil is his church. Do you remember earlier in our study when the locust plague had come? Do you remember what their chief complaint was? Remember, it, it wasn't that they, had, they didn't have food to eat or the drought had stricken the nation or their, their cattle were dying. That wasn't their number one complaint. Their number one complaint, if you remember, was they didn't have a grain and a drink offering. And we thought that a bit odd. But then we realized, wait a minute, if they don't have a grain and a drink offering, then they can't put that together with the, the, the unblemished lamb and have the burnt offering in the morning and the evening to worship God. If they can't worship God, then they don't have God as their stronghold. And if they don't have God as their stronghold, then they are vulnerable. He called them to put on sackcloth and lament because they couldn't worship God. But God says, no. They cried out to him, and he heard. He went to them. He covered them. He promised to pull back the locust plague, to restore the land, to bring the rain, do you remember? And to bring the crops and to heal the broken land. This was his promise for the people in Joel's day. And this is his promise for all who repent and believe and cry out to God in Christ. Every single one of us. He wants you to have him as your stronghold. He doesn't want you relying upon any idol or any false god. He wants you to make him your stronghold, your refuge, your strength. But it requires that we cry out to him. Do you remember when our Lord in his last days was approaching Jerusalem and he was looking from a hill and he's looking upon Jerusalem? Do you remember that? Do you remember what he said? He too desired their protection. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. And then Christ said, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is God's desire. He desires none to perish. He wants all men to come and find Christ as the Savior. But we know how this ends. He enters Jerusalem. He is arrested. He's falsely persecuted. He is punished. He's executed. They did not receive the protection. No man will, neither Jew nor Gentile, no man will come to Christ unless Christ comes to them first. Even with the day of judgment, if the infinity war is true for mankind, that should be sufficient for you to say, I need someone to help. I need a superhero but it's not enough. 
So what does Christ do? Christ does the absolute unthinkable. We won't come to him, so he must come to us. We won't make Christ our refuge, so he makes himself a refuge for us. And I had this this idea this week as I was thinking, he goes into the valley of decision and he grabs a hold of you because you're not going to come to him otherwise. The war is raging, the judgment is coming, the harvest is ripe, and he goes to you and he says, no, not this one. And like a chick, he brings you under his wing and he protects you from the great judgment to come. He, I, I had this vision charging out as this glorious warrior saying, those are mine, not them, Lord. And we know that he did this by going to the cross. He charged out into the valley of decision. The valley of decision for Christ was the cross where he experienced the war and the judgment and the harvest of God for us. You see, the believer is saved from the valley of decision not because of his upbringing, not because you go to church, not because you own a Bible or 12. You are saved because Jesus Christ became your refuge and your strength. You are saved not by your religion, not by your spiritual encounter. You escape the final day because God the Father treated the Son as he was supposed to treat you and me and all who will be saved. When he put his perfect Son on the cross, he made Christ an enemy combatant. He made Christ an enemy combatant. And so he waged war against his son by piercing him. He exercised his justice against Christ by punishing him with the full wrath that we rightly deserved. God the Father took his sickle and he cut down his son's precious body. He put his son into the winepress of the cross and he crushed his son, body and blood being spilled on our behalf. All the war, all the judgment, all the harvest of evil that was supposed to be upon you by grace was taken and placed upon the superhero Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate avenger. And God did that so that we sinners, saved by grace, can have now, listen, and forever peace instead of war, mercy instead of judgment righteousness in our life now and forever instead of the unrighteous evil that God must destroy. To all men from every nation who turn from their sins and turn to the Savior, who put down their spears, who put down their swords and cease to fight against God and cannot win. They know they cannot win. And come instead into the stronghold of God himself through repentance and faith. God is saying to you this morning, if you have not heard this, flee from the valley of decision. Flee from the war to come. Flee into Christ. He is the covering. He is the refuge. He is our strength. And Jesus becomes to you and will, look at verse 16 again, the latter part, the glorious future of Judah. Why? So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. It is a picture of the end. Christ is not just your covering. He's not just your refuge. He is the center of the city. 
and seated upon his throne, we get this picture of Christ reigning, holy Christ reigning with a holy people in a holy city. You know what that means? It means no more sin. No more sin in you. No more sin amongst the people. No more sin in the city. Imagine San Jose as a sinless place. In that day, we will know him, Christ, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He will captivate us. For how long? For eternity. You will be captivated. The only superhero movie that will be running for all eternity will be that of the Avenger Jesus Christ. Christ and the cross. And you'll be captivated forever. The story will be told again and again. You'll say, play it again, play it again. You, his holy people, in the holy city, with the holiest of holies, Jesus Christ. Never again a stranger will pass through it. It means no more sin, no more foreigner, no more deception, no more cause for war, no more need for judgment, no more need for a harvest. Only the righteous rule of a crucified, risen Savior, reigning as king, lasting goodness, lasting joy. Never again to fall. Never a second fall. Last point, final state, that's it. It is a picture so glorious that if we get a taste of it, we would be doing somersaults, even though we're not charismatic. (laughs) Number three, the final state. I I don't know how the movie ends, and I I wouldn't spoil it if I did. I haven't read up on how the Avengers Infinity War ends. I don't know. I know how this story ends. In this story, paradise returns. A paradise infinitely greater than that that was in the garden before the fall. Look at verse 18. In that day, this day now is after the war, judgment has been exercised. God's people now reign with him in the city, Christ upon the throne. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. This is, this is the grand finale. I mean, this is the final state. Imagine, we hear that and we think, all right, Mountains dripping with sweet wine and hills with milk. Sounds a bit odd to us. It wouldn't have to those in Joel's day. Remember, they had just been devastated by the locust plague, devastated by a drought. They were starving to death. And God is saying, what I'm going to do to your land and what I'm going to do to the universe is bring back a total restoration unlike anyone can imagine. So this language in the poetry is over-the-top language. The mountains are dripping with food and crops and fields beyond the people's needs. Never again will they grow hungry. Never again will they worry about a drought or a locust plague. Never again concerned about judgment. The hills flowing with milk because they're so sufficient with grass to feed an innumerable amount of herds. You probably remember Exodus 3.8, the talking of the promised land, be flowing with what? Milk and honey. Milk and honey. And in Jerusalem, it says they'll, 
There'll be a, a stream bed, a water, a fountain flowing. There was no river that ran through Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always struggling with water supply. When there was a drought, where would they go? Egypt. Why? The Nile. And yet here, there's a picture of an endless supply of water, and not just any water. The psalmist says in Psalm 46.4, describing this river, there's a river whose streams, listen to this, make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, a water that makes people joyful. Same river discussed in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2. Same river described by the Apostle John in Revelation 22. Listen, then the angel showed me the river of the water of what? Of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. If you don't like water, you're not going to like heaven. And according to Ezekiel 47, everything this river touches, the trees, the fish, the people, the land, listen to this, everything will live where the river goes because the river flows from the sanctuary of God. So this imagery is not just of water. It is of life. And it flows from the throne of God. It flows from Christ throughout the city. And everything it touches, it makes alive. And not just alive, but perfectly alive. Everything it touches. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 9 when the woman that was hemorrhaging, she says to herself, what? If I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. She understood that life flowed from Christ. Healing flowed from Christ. And here, the picture in the city of one of abundant water flowing out forever and ever so that the trees and the fish and the people never again are subject to what? Sin and death. You live forever. You'll never be sick again. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be dissatisfied. Not even for a moment and eternal satisfaction in Christ. The dialogue that our Lord had with the Samaritan woman at the well pointed to this day as well. She didn't get it. And oftentimes when we preach this, we don't get it. He said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. Same water. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Eternal life. He was painting for her a picture of this final state, of this life with God after the war. Life without death. Joy without disappointment. Comfort with no fear of pain or suffering to ever come back. A lasting satisfaction, and this may be hard to imagine, it is for me. A lasting satisfaction that does not diminish with time, but only grows greater and greater. (laughs) Now, imagine that for a minute. A satisfaction in you that does not suffer from diminishing utility, but increases So for those of you who are steak lovers and you sit down and you have that first bite of that filet mignon, you haven't had steak in weeks and you say, that is the best piece of meat I've ever eaten. The second gets better and the third and the fourth and the next steak and the next steak. You say, how can that be? This is the final state in Christ. 
the water gives life and satisfaction forever and ever. It is a way of life, my beloved. It is. It's beyond your wildest dreams. Whatever you conjure up, you can't get close to it. But if you can, if you can hear Joel and you can hear this promise of life in Christ forever and ever, it will, it will put things in their proper perspective. Or it should for us. I, I think that many of the things in life, the small things that we make big, you have some in your life right now, do you not? They're small and you've made them big. And some of you have big things in your life that you've made ultimate. They get out of proportion on us. I think that happens often because we lose picture of the big picture. Your end is glorious. This is not it. There's a, I know that I've done this twice, so forgive me, but there's a, another quote from the Lord of the Rings I've got to share. I know I did it a few weeks ago, but this one's even better. For those of you who know the story, this is the return of the king, and the orcs are coming upon Minas Tirith. This is the, this is the city of men, the city of kings, and they've already broken through, and in this scene, Gandalf and Pippin, who's one of the hobbits, they're sitting in the stronghold, so they've already retreated into the stronghold of the city, and now the orcs are about to break down the stronghold, and Gandalf and Pippin are sitting there, and, and Pippin says to Gandalf, he's frightened, he said, I didn't think it would end this way, and Gandalf says, end? He says, no, the journey doesn't end here. Now listen to this. If you are in Christ, this is for you. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. And then he says, the great rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. And he pauses. And Pippin says, what? Gandalf, see what? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no, no it isn't. Your promise of life in Christ is white shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise, my beloved. By God's grace, get a picture of it. Hold it in your heart and mind as you walk through your day. Let's close, verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolation, a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Verse 20, but Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so he closes with this sharp contrast. Egypt, Edom, these are the last enemies that will be destroyed by God on the Valley of Decision. And then the people of God in Judah, those in Christ, enjoying eternal peace. Judah, you shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So in the end, in the real story, in the real infinity war, there is an avenger, and it is God. He is the ultimate avenger. And he says, I'm going to avenge the blood of my people. 
all the persecution that you've experienced, all the heartache, all the remarks made to you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, any hardship Christ brings back, God says, I will avenge my people. I love in Revelation 6, and the martyrs are underneath the throne of God, and they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? In this moment, in the great war, he will do that. And then he says he will avenge the blood of his own son. He will avenge the blood of Christ. And he will do that by making Christ king. He will do that by having everyone bow to Christ. He will do that by having God's church dwell with Christ forever, reigning at his right hand over the heavens and the earth. When we started Joel, we started this theme that God was going to glorify his name by redeeming many out of judgment. It's a fitting place for us to end as well, that God glorifies himself by redeeming people out of the judgment to come. This is the storyline of the Bible, that God desires sinful people like us to repent and believe and be saved in Christ, that his name might be glorified, that in that name, that in that end, he will avenge your blood, he will avenge the blood of Christ. I pray that we can become expert storytellers. You know the story. You know the story. The day of the Lord is real. The infinity war, the real infinity war is coming. The Bible makes that clear. It's not going to be between the Avengers and Thanos. It's going to be between God and sinful man. It is a war that will make this upcoming movie look like a Disney cartoon. It will be apocalyptic beyond measure. God calls every man, woman, and child this very hour to repent and live to find life in Christ, to make Christ the stronghold, to make Christ the refuge. And then he says, I will come and I will dwell amongst you. And this is the consummation of the promise. This is the great story. This is the story of our time. It is the story of God's redemptive history. Last question for you. Do those in your mission field know this story? Do your neighbors and coworkers know this story? Four weeks from now, there will be people at work talking about this movie. It's a much-anticipated movie. Will they be talking about this story? Not fiction, but fact. Not entertainment, but God's prophetic word. Have you told them this story? Have you told them about this day that is coming? Have you told them that without Christ they will be judged? Have you told them about the hope they can have in the Avenger, the superhero, Jesus Christ? Have you told them that that does not have to be their end, but they can be part of that city of Zion? They can bathe themselves daily in the water that flows from the sanctuary of Christ, that they can know eternal life and enjoy God forever. Let's, let's be a telling church. Let's tell people of this story. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful that you have made the story known to us. This is pure grace. You could have left us to our own devices. You could have, Lord, in your justice, seen fit to have all mankind drawn upon that valley of decision and be rightly judged and cast into hell for all eternity. But your grace and your love and your desire to make yourself known as a saving God precluded that. We are thankful that this story does not end in death for all, that you are pleased to save many through Christ. We are so thankful, Father, that you revealed that to us that you called us out of the valley of decision, that you poured out your war and your judgment and your harvest upon Christ instead of us, that we might come this morning and say, amen, hallelujah, Christ is my life. And because of that, we know that we live. We live now and we will live for eternity in your presence. Father, we are so undeserving of this and you saw fit to save us. Cultivate in our hearts, Father, a deep desire to share this story with others. Let us take the truth that you've shown us through the prophet Joel and take that to those in our mission field. So many, Father, who do not know, so many who do not believe, so many who've never heard of Christ and the fact that they can be saved from this wrath to come. Father, loosen our lips, open our mouths, and let us be faithful to boldly share these fantastic truths. We ask, Lord, that you would do that and in so doing, save many Redeem many, Lord. Bring many to a saving grace that we might enjoy them as brothers and sisters now and forever. And we ask you would do it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.